please turn in your New Testaments to Mark 14.9. Mark 14.9. And I'm just going to read verse 24, and then I'll read in the midst of this time together the passage itself. The key verse, I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief. I do believe, I believe, help me overcome my unbelief. This is a great passage to teach us the true nature of faith. And uh, I actually chose this passage uh, many, many years ago to preach at a wedding, believe it or not. Um, you know, how nice, beautiful bride, handsome groom, lots of Bach and, and <clears throat> classical music and flowers everywhere. Where, and then the, the, the message on the exorcism passage. You know, this, uh, it was a very interesting day, that day at the wedding. They were two of the leaders in our singles ministry at First Press, Augusta, uh, where I went right after seminary. She was very talented and lovely, just did so many things in leadership in that, in that group. But I'll tell you, she also was a person with enormous emotional deficits many of which came from a very difficult childhood. The reason I know that is because she was also very transparent about so many of her fears and so many of the things going on in in her life. And she was very conscious of the fact that some of the things that she carried around in, in her heart had the potential to really harm her marriage. She said she actually feared having children because she was scared that the emotional capacity needed to become a mother would actually just be too great for her. Of course, he too had his issues. We all do, do we not? But I tell you, both of them loved the Lord, and they both had a growing relationship with Christ and and that had been, for, for each one of them, the, the difference in their life. And they were convinced that that would be the difference going forward into a marriage and, and into parenting. In this passage in Mark 9, we find a man with massive challenges that he cannot control. This man has a son who is furiously, restlessly demon-possessed. I mean, this, this, this boy, this son, is just on suicide watch all the time. And this man watches these fits, and it tries to throw him into the fire at night, and, and he's just exhausted. But, but he too, this man, believed that the power of Jesus would be the difference. And that's why he brought his son to Jesus. And, and this passage teaches us something very important about the nature of faith. And here it is. It's who your faith is in. <clears throat> Excuse me. It's who your faith is in, not so much how much faith you have. Let me say that again. It's 
who your faith is in, not just how much faith you have. The first idea is this idea from our text of, of it's who your faith is in. Jesus Christ is the second person of God, sent down to earth to bring salvation to us, to bring relationship, restore relationship uh, with God to humanity and to, to individual people. And the amazing thing about Christ is that God came down here on a mission out of love, out of initiatory love. He became one of us to substitute for us, to identify with us, to, to, to take our cause uh, to the cross so that we could be saved. We could have our sins dealt with by Jesus once and for all. He came down here. He became one of us. But the amazing thing is he never quit being God. And, and it is in this chapter in Mark's gospel, and it's in the other, other two synoptic gospels, Matthew and Luke as well, that we see in the most clear way Jesus demonstrating the reality of who he really is. They obviously see that he is a man, right? They obviously see that he needs sleep, that he has to, that he hungers, that he thirsts, etc. But it is here in the early verses of Mark 9 where, where Jesus takes them up on a mountain. If you look at in verse 9, 2, immediately before our passage with the, the man with the demon-possessed son... He led them up on a high mountain where they were all alone. This was Peter, James, and John. And there, he was transformed. He was transfigured. His appearance changed. There, he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And what happened on that mountain was that Jesus revealed his glory. It's a wonderful thing. One of the old, old theologians remarked that, that it, was, it was harder, in a sense, for Jesus to cloak his glory, his 33 years, than, than to reveal his glory. What Jesus did on the mountain was easy because he just revealed and, and continued to, to, to not cloak, if you will. He, he revealed his glory there on that mountain. And not only did they see Jesus for who he was as God the Son, but Moses and Elijah appeared on that mountain as well. And Peter, James, and John were just blown away at the dazzling purity and glory and holiness and majesty and power of this person they had been with who was God the Son, as well as their teacher and their friend. And, and the passage is important because it, it shows us that Jesus really is more than a man. Jesus really is more than a teacher. He really is more than a prophet. He really is God. And if the glory of God weren't enough, those two spiritual heroes were there as well, you know, I mean, it's kind of like uh, a kid that collects baseball cards that gets to meet the person on the card, you know. 
Um, and hey, this isn't, this isn't just like a baseball, you know, professional or whatever, you major league baseball player. This is Moses and Elijah. Moses representing the law and Elijah representing the prophets. This is God's way of representing all of his truth and, and the whole story and the reality of, of God and us and his covenant love right there in glory on the mountain. And of course, Peter blurts out, let's stay forever. Let's stay forever. Let's build tents, one for Jesus, one for Moses, one for Elijah, so that, you know, we'll, we'll just be able to live up here in this glory. Because the glory of God is like that. It is the, it is the real thing. And, and, and I'm going to tell you, one day in heaven, we who have put our trust in Jesus, who have had our sins dealt with and and the guilt of our sins and the condemnation for our sins removed by Christ's life and death on our behalf. We're going to see that glory and we're going to dwell in that glory and there's there's no going to be any need for, for tents. It's going to be, as the King James Version says, the mansions. And I'm going to tell you something about heaven. You're never going to want to leave. Peter's right. Take it from Peter. Let's don't ever go down off this mountain. But unlike heaven, the glory displayed on this mountain did not last. And we read on in verse 7, Then a cloud appeared and enveloped them, and a voice came from the cloud, This is my Son, whom I love. Listen to Him. Verse 8, Suddenly when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. And so they're just left with their mouth open, right? Now what happens? I mean, this is just life transforming. You know what happens now? They're going down that mountain because at the base of that mountain is an utterly exhausted, emotionally strung out man whose child is furiously demon-possessed who, who literally tries to kill himself all the time. They go from the glory down to one of the worst things you could ever encounter or, or still could ever encounter. And Jesus finds his disciples arguing when he comes down there. You'll have to read a little bit more of the text. And he asks what the problem is. And, and the father steps forward to, to tell what kind of what's going on. And it's very meaningful to him because he's lived with, with this problem for so long. And he tells the pitiful details about his son and, and the demon. Yes, we do believe in a, in a literal Satan in our church. We do believe in our, in our church. He's in our church too probably. But uh, in our church, we believe in literal Satan. And we do believe not only in angels, but we also believe in demons who do the work of Satan. And that is what is happening here in, in and just writ large in the life of this little boy. Mark nine seventeen. a man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought you my son who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of his speech, and so he's mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth. He gnashes his teeth. He becomes rigid. I ask your disciples to drive out the spirit. But they could not. 
And Jesus said immediately in verse 19, O unbelieving generation, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. It's who your faith is in. Bring the boy to me. And so, verse 20, they brought him. And when the Spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. And he fell to the ground. And he rolled around, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked the boy's father, How long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. It has often thrown him into the fire or into water to kill him, to drown him. God's heart is for the strung out and the people at the end of their own resources who recognize Jesus as the Son of God. God's heart is for the weak and those who realize they cannot, at the end of the day, help themselves in a way that only Jesus, the Son of God, can help us. And and His heart is for those who realize how messed up they are. And know they need him like this father knew he needed Jesus. In this passage, God comes down. Obviously, God came down in Bethlehem, to Bethlehem, was born one of us. But God, from the glory, transfigured glory, God comes down the mountain to heal this pathetic Demon-possessed child. It's Jesus, the glorious Son of God, who alone has all authority in heaven and earth. It's who your faith is in. Not just how much faith you have. And it's that second part that this man, as he goes on to talk with Jesus, shows us just exhausted. Can you imagine how exhausted this man is? And just at wit's end, the boy's father says to Jesus, if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. And there's a problem with that question. Do you notice the word if? If you can do anything. There's doubt here. Here's the Son of God and there is doubt. And folks, that's totally understandable. This man just had Jesus' disciples unable to cast out this demon out of his boy in the name of Jesus. This man has lived every day on suicide watch since this little boy, since this boy was little, and it's just been years without change. And we'll see that we shouldn't, we shouldn't kind of get on to this person emotionally for saying, if you can help me, please do. Jesus himself does not get on to this man in the midst of his struggle. And I love Jesus' response. And, you know, sometimes when you, when you read the words of Jesus or when you state them, you, there's, there's nothing, there's no asterisk that says, and Jesus said this with intensity or Jesus said this with joy or Jesus said this with sadness just said, Jesus said. In my mind's eye, I see Jesus saying it with a, with a, with a, a, a compassion and a, sen- and a sense of knowing and, and understanding. And, and I believe probably almost with a, a smile reassuring this man, if you can, he says, if you can, 
everything is possible for him who believes. That's what Jesus said. Everything is possible for him who believes. And then the main point of this message at least. The Father answered, verse 24, I do believe. Please help me overcome my unbelief. Look what happened. When Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the evil spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And the spirit shrieked and convulsed him violently and came out. And the boy looked so much like a corpse that many said, he's dead. Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet. And he stood up. And he gave him back to his father. This was the faith that the Son of God recognized and acted on. This is maybe the faith where Jesus in other places called mustard seed faith. It's just a small amount, is it not? It's laced with mixed feelings but it's rooted in a belief in the true identity of Jesus and the reality of Jesus' power. This is the, at the end of ourselves, reaching out to God kind of faith. Let me say that again. At the end of ourselves, reaching out to God kind of faith, this is the heart of what faith really needs to look like. I remember being in a situation years ago in a ministry. I was telling somebody this story the other day. I said, I'm going I'm to share this from the pulpit where uh, things weren't in this particular situation weren't going well at all, at all. And so, you know what I did? I did what, what, what you guys probably do. I tried harder. I tried harder and it got worse. So you can only guess what I did after that. I tried even harder. And that trying even harder is kind of like now I got to try to control the situation. And that made it even worse. And I am just frustrated out of my mind because, you know, I'm a preacher. I'm supposed to have answers, right? I don't know what to do. I don't go into the details, but this is really hard. And I remember on the way to work one morning, I was driving, driving down the road just so frustrated. It's bad when you're mad going to work. And I said out loud, and there was nobody in the car with me, by the way, God, I'm so mad at these people. And then suddenly I said something absolutely profound that I did not plan to say. What I meant, probably would have said was, let me air my grievances about these people and The fact that I'm doing what I perceive to be the right thing and the right things aren't happening. No, 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 you know. But but no, there was something that just kind of bubbled up and just came out of me. It was, God, I'm so mad at these people. Lord, I I don't know what to do anymore. What are you going to do with these people? Do you know what? At that moment, having said out loud to God in utter frustration, Lord, what are you going to do with these people? 
I actually had a sense of peace that just came over me. I mean, it's the most amazing thing. In my bones, I knew that if I would stay in that posture and be responsible to fulfill the law of love with these people and be faithful to the Scriptures, it was going to be okay. And you know what? It was. It was. took some time. You can chart it right back to that car ride. Lord, I believe. Help me in my unbelief. I speak to people who are just wrestling mighty, mightily with things. You know, we just wrestle and we pitch and turn. And life is such a wrestling match emotionally and spiritually and and in so many ways in a fallen world. And I talk to people who are just wrestling and they are so tired and they're beginning to question their walk with God. And I ask them, hey, look, can I just ask you this? I mean, are you, where is your trust? I don't want to talk about the answers to your situation first, if you don't mind. Where is your trust? For instance, are you trusting in Christ and what he has done for you for your salvation? Well, yes, Joseph, of course. And it's it's as if they are saying, Look, I believe that Jesus is the Son of the living God. I believe that Jesus is at the right hand of the Father. I believe that Jesus reigns. I believe that Jesus is going to return and that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I'm just having a hard time trusting God with my teenager right now. I'm scared. I'm trying to do this. I'm trying to do that. Having a hard time trusting Jesus with my job right now. With my marriage right now. I'm worn out. I'm I'm filled with fear. And folks, let me tell you something. Let me tell you what that is. That's honesty. But more important than that, That's humility. I can't do it. And so I'm taking it to God. Mixed feelings and all. Charles Spurgeon on this passage said, Help my unbelief. It's something that a person can only say by faith. While men have no faith, they are unconscious of their unbelief. But as soon as they get a little faith, they begin to be conscious of the actual size of their unbelief. Here's the point. We can trust God with our salvation and with the, with the big narrative of our life, but what about what we're going through right now? What does faith look like? What does an approach to God when we're just filled with so many mixed feelings? To the one we know has authority, all authority in heaven. What's an approach to God by faith look like when things just aren't going the way we want them to go and things are happening in our lives that we just don't understand, right? Let me tell you, that father's faith was strong enough to bring that boy to Jesus. And Jesus took that father just where he was. Jesus didn't condemn that father. 
for mixed feelings. Jesus saw that he believed. This, this, this man believed in the true identity of who Jesus was. And uh, Jesus took him where he was. And I'm going to tell you something. My heart connects with that. I don't know about you. That encourages me. Because when we failed, when we struggle, when we wrestle, you know, I put it in the first person. You want to despair, right? You just kind of slip a little lower or you, you kick it into a new gear of trying to overcome it. And when that doesn't work, you slip a little lower. And that could be a failure as a husband or a father or a pastor. Well, Satan loves that one. And you call yourself a pastor, you know, or just personally. But I don't know about you, but you can be slipping slowly toward that, those hard, difficult feelings. And I tell you that at that moment, the downhearted feelings sometimes speak louder than the words, everything is possible to him who believes. That has been my experience. I'm no different from this man in Mark 9, and neither are you. I can't tell you how many times, maybe not exactly, but pretty much spot on, content-wise, I can't tell you how many times I have spoken this man's prayer to God over the years as my own. Let it be your prayer as well. Do not believe the lie that somehow you have got to close every gap of fear, every gap of failure, every gap of whatever before Jesus wants you to appear before him. Jesus wants you to appear before him because he is the son of God. He is the only mediator between us and the father. He is precisely who we take all this stuff to. And praise God that we have him and a relationship. But I don't know what you do without that. You play a game for a while is what you do until it all catches up with you. And it's just layer on layer on layer. That's what you do. You can't deny, the human heart can't deny its moral dimension. At some point, all that's got to go somewhere. And where it goes is to the God who loves and understands and forgives and takes what is weak and makes strong and takes what is not and creates and makes it to be as those things that are. And it's so beautiful. And I say to you, come to Jesus today, mixed feelings and all. Lord, I do believe, whatever you're going through, I do believe. Help me in my unbelief. Oh, by the way, I, um, I went back to First Presbyterian Church of Augusta this year to speak at their missions conference. And do you know who drove down from North Carolina just to say hello? This young lady that I married like 24 years ago or whatever many years ago. I hadn't seen her. I guess we had, Gina and I had seen her one other time. She stopped by Tuscaloosa many, many years ago. Um, and there she is, 
She's just like me. She's middle-aged now. You know, people kind of get stuck in your head the way they are. And, and, and she's middle-aged. And, uh, and you know what? They're doing great. She's still very honest and transparent. And when I say they're doing great, I mean they're str- still wrestling with life. Still having to trust God. But they're doing great. And they've grown so much. And they've got two children. And she's a fabulous mother. And they're involved in ministry through their PCA church. And we talked for a good long time about the challenges that we face at this age, at this place in in our journey. And I was so impressed with her perspective on life 24 years later. We, I brought up to her, excuse me, no, no, she brought up to me her wedding And she said, I've often wondered how it was that you figured out the exact right passage to preach on. And this is like the third time over the years, once by phone, uh, that she has told me this. I've often wondered, how did you know the exact right passage to preach on when I got married? The exorcism passage. The one where there wasn't any hope except in Jesus. And the person who needed Jesus was struggling mightily. And finally, because he believed, was able to shift his dependency upon the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, would you grant us the ability to persevere? And thank you that your spirit does that in our lives to be encouraged this morning that you are the second person of God. You are the one who represents us before the Father. No one will ever be able to take us out of your hand or separate us from your love. We know you. And Lord, thank you that it's just as true this morning as it was in the the highest mountaintop experience that any of us have ever had at a retreat or a camp or a a time in our lives where we saw more clearly or maybe just didn't have as many challenges. It's just as true that you are God and that you love your people and you love to act on our behalf. Lord, would you see in this congregation this morning many hurting souls some who are downhearted and discouraged. Some are who are confused. But, oh Lord, would you see this morning those who struggle, yet who believe? Pray with me silently, inwardly. I do believe, Lord, in you. Help me in my unbelief. You work in this situation, God. And I will do whatever it is that you would want for me to do. God, would you just bring peace? And would you just build our faith? Even us, the people with mixed feelings who believe.
through Jesus our Lord. Amen.